Praise the Lord. We give thanks for our children. Amen? And for those who work with them. Lord, bless Debbie. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, this morning we are going to continue our study in Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open up to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. I've entitled the message this morning, Trusting in God's Plan. And so I want to start with a question. Are you able to trust in God's divine plan for your life? even when it involves suffering and you're not sure what the future holds. Sometimes it's very challenging for us to trust in God's plan, especially in times of sickness or pain or sorrow, and especially if we cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I want to assure you that if you are a servant of Christ, you can trust that whatever circumstances you find yourself in or are facing in your future, you can trust that God will work them out for your spiritual good and for his glory. That is a promise from God for his people. Last Sunday of my sermon, we looked at Philippians Chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. And in that passage, we read what Paul had to say about his imprisonment and the joy that he was experiencing in the midst of this great trial. And I stated that he serves as an example to us of someone who is willing to endure all things for the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. In our text for today, we will see that the same is true as Paul looks to the future. As he looks to his standing trial before the emperor, not knowing what the result will be. He is confident in his own deliverance, in Christ being honored in his life, and in God's divine plan for his future. So if you can, please stand for the reading of our text. I'll be reading Philippians 1, starting in verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. As Paul looks to the future, which is somewhat unknown, he opens with a remarkable declaration of joy-filled confidence in his personal deliverance. The word know here in verse 19, for I know, it means to know something with absolute certainty. Paul was convinced that his present trials and suffering will turn out for his deliverance. Paul is actually here quoting from Job when he makes this statement. In Job 13, 16, Job replies to his friend Zophar that his circumstances will be my salvation or deliverance. Like Job, Paul fully believed that his sufferings were not a result of his own sin or of God's punishment, but were instead a part of God's divine plan. Therefore, they both fully believed that God would one day deliver them and they would be vindicated no matter what others were saying about them. Remember, in Job's case, it was his friends who were accusing him of sin in some way. That would explain why God would be punishing him. But that was not the case. In Paul's case, it was actually other Christians who were wanting to one-up him. And so they were putting him down. We hear things like that today, don't we? That if somebody is going through a tough patch... Somebody will say, well, God must be dealing with something in their lives. Well, not necessarily. A few years earlier, Paul had written to the believers in Rome. And he wrote these words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Well, how can that be? Because God's plans are different than our plans. God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. God knows what he is doing in us, for us, And what he is doing through us in impacting the lives of others. Now Paul was applying this very sentence that he had written to his own life. Just as we should as well. He was fully convinced that God would redeem his present and future sufferings for his own glory. And Paul was joyful 
in this confidence, joyful that God would be glorified somehow, some way through his current trials and God's future plan for him. The word translated deliverance here is the Greek word soteria, which means most commonly rendered salvation. Some commentators believe that Paul is referring to his deliverance from sin and death through his faith in Jesus Christ. The idea then would be his confidence in his eternal security in Christ. Others take this deliverance to refer to his vindication before Caesar. That these charges against him will be seen to be what they are, false, and his future release from prison and being delivered from execution. Still others relate it to Paul's desire to be delivered from his own flesh, his own sin nature, which will only occur at his death. Paul writes about that in Romans 7 when he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? Because he's tired of dealing with sin in his own body, in his own flesh. And he knows who that deliverer will be. It will be Christ. Christ will deliver us from this body of flesh when he comes to receive us to himself. In each case, Paul knew confidently that his present and even his future circumstances were temporary. One way or another, whether by life or by death, he would be delivered from them. His was an eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective. And that reflects exactly what he had written earlier to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Paul writes. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen? Is our outer self wasting away? Absolutely. I see a universal nodding of heads. Of course, some of you that are really young are going, well, not yet. Uh, yeah, actually it is. You just don't realize it yet. Our bodies are earth suits, and they're going to wear out, okay? But the soul contained therein has been made new in Christ, amen? And that soul, that is being renewed day by day by Christ. The Apostle Paul understood this. He understood that everything he was going through was temporal. It was temporary. Eternity awaits. 
Note that Paul's confidence that he would endure and honor Christ in the process was also based upon the prayers of the saints and the help from the Spirit of Christ. Paul believed in the power of prayer, and he knew that he needed other saints to be praying for him. He knew that. That's why he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Before he had come to Rome, he had written in advance to the church in Rome these words. Now I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Romans 15.30. So he was pleading with the Christians in Rome to pray for him. To the Thessalonians, he wrote, brothers, pray for us. To the Ephesians, which he wrote to from the same imprisonment, he wrote these words, Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the man that God used to write half of our New Testament. And he says, I need your prayers. I covet your prayers. Please pray for me. Paul clearly believed that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, as did James, who wrote that in James 5.16. So part of Paul's confidence was based upon the prayers of the saints on his behalf, knowing that our God hears and answers our prayers. Amen? Paul also had confidence in the Spirit of Christ working in him to empower him to glorify Christ in any and all circumstances. Paul would heartily agree with the statement that we sing in one of my favorite songs, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The Holy Spirit dwells within every believer, and He is our helper. Jesus told His disciples that He would ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. And later he told them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Paul understood that he was but a man. But he was a man indwelt by Christ himself, by the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ came to empower us to be witnesses 
for Christ. Paul knew that he had a source of divine wisdom, of divine knowledge and power dwelling within him. And so do all who are chosen children of God. Paul is reminding the Philippians and us that our confidence is not to be in ourselves or in our own wisdom or in our own powers or our own abilities, but in God, in God's word, in the power of prayer, and in the power of the Spirit of Christ. Paul is facing trial before Caesar. He will have to stand and make a defense before Caesar. And Paul needs to know that he has the saints praying for him, that he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, that he has the power of God to do this so that he will indeed glorify Christ in that moment. So Paul is confident in his deliverance from his present circumstances, and he is confident in Christ being honored by him. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is confident that when he stands before Caesar, no matter how that trial goes, Christ will be honored in him. That's his desire. That's his desire more than his freedom. As the previous text made clear, Paul is experiencing no shame from being in prison, but he's actually rejoicing in the opportunity to glorify Christ while there. Now, as Paul looks forward to his trial before Caesar, his concern is that Christ will once again be honored in him as he stands before the tribunal and as he gives a bold defense of Christ and the gospel. His desire is that in a very open and public way, Christ will be honored through his speech and his conduct, no matter how the trial turns out. It's immaterial. It doesn't matter to him. What matters to him is honoring Christ. And note here, Paul says he wants this to happen now as always. That's quite a powerful statement. Paul is saying that he has always considered his life to be lived to the praise and glory of Christ. That is why he's been rejoicing in his imprisonment. Because his imprisonment resulted in the advance of the gospel. His imprisonment resulted in Christ being proclaimed in a greater way. By the grace of God, Paul had been delivered from his former manner of life when he had lived for himself and for the praise and recognition of others. 
Later, in this very letter, in chapter 3, Paul will confess to his own self-righteous attitudes and practices that dominated his life before Christ set him free, before Christ called him out of the darkness into his marvelous light. When confronted with who Jesus was, the very Son of God, the Lord God Almighty, Paul fell to his knees, repented of his sin, and believed upon Christ for his salvation. And from that day on, Paul's burning desire had been to honor Christ in his body and in his life and to tell others about Christ so that they too may be set free and experience eternal life through him. So now Paul wants to continue as always to honor Christ no matter the outcome of this coming trial. He wants to go on honoring Christ, to honor Christ if he's allowed to live, and to honor Christ in his dying if that is the result of God's plan. He states the two outcomes very succinctly in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The first outcome For me to live as Christ, for Paul to go on living meant that Christ would go on living through him. This was how Paul saw the Christian life. He saw it as no longer his life to live, but instead that Christ would live in and through him. And I'm not exaggerating here. Because he wrote this very thing in his first letter, his letter to the Galatians. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is what Paul writes. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? I, the old man, the person that I was before Christ, the person enslaved to sin, has been crucified, has been put to death through my union with Christ. It is no longer I, the old man who live, who will be in control, who will dictate what I do, but Christ lives in me. In my yet mortal body, in a body of flesh, dwells the Spirit of of Christ and lives, well, that means he is to be in control. He is to dictate how I live and what I do. He is Lord. Amen? I mean, he's Savior, absolutely, but also Lord. It doesn't end with us being saved. 
It ends with us surrendering our life to him that we might live to please and glorify him, not ourselves. He gave himself for me to set me free to give myself for him. For me to live is Christ. That is the desire and goal for every true believer in Christ. That is a synopsis of what it means to be a Christian. For me to live is Christ. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but would instead live to please and glorify the one who gave himself to save us and set us free and empower us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Well, the second possible outcome is that he might be executed. And Paul says to die is gain. This expresses not a death wish, nor a dissatisfaction with life, nor a desire to be done with his troubles and trials. It is instead a clear statement of the surpassing glory that awaits every true believer in Christ. It describes a day when Christ comes to take us to himself in heaven. Paul goes on to say that his desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, he writes. I think that is actually an understatement. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, quote, This momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Far better. Beyond all comparison. And he's not talking here about material things. He's talking about our relationship with Christ. Right now, we are separated from him. We cannot see him face to face. We are not in his very presence. And we have this body of sin, this body of flesh that keeps us from loving him perfectly, serving him perfectly, glorifying him perfectly. It restricts us. It restrains us. Yes, we have the spirit of Christ dwelling in us, a foretaste of glory divine. But the glory still awaits us. We had the memorial service yesterday from Mike Clark. We acknowledge the fact that he is now in glory. Would he return if he could? No. Not on your life. No one will want to come back from that place. So Paul goes on to say that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul tells us there is no comparison between this life and the life to come. When we finally experience the eternal weight of glory that has been prepared for us. So Paul has confidence in his deliverance. He has confidence in Christ being honored. 
either through his life or through his death. And he has confidence in God's plan, both for him and for the church. In this case, for the Philippians. Look at verse 22 with me. If I am to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul was not certain what God's plan was for him, whether he would continue to live serving Christ and others for Christ, or whether he would die and be with Christ. But of this he was certain. God had a plan for him, and God was in control. He longed to depart and be with Christ, but he also knew that there was work for Christ that could still be done, and that would glorify Christ as well. So he tells us, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's expressing the truth that God has not yet revealed his will in this matter to Paul. So Paul does not know yet which he should choose. Because Paul wants God's will to be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Doesn't that sound familiar? What a great example he sets for all of us. Because we tend to set our sights on our goals and then pursue them often without asking what would bring greater glory to Christ. And in the end, that's all that Paul wants is to bring glory to his Savior and Lord. As he is writing, he's also realizing how much work is left to be done and how much the church still needed him. Convinced of this, he believes that God will allow him to remain for their benefit, for their progress and joy in the faith, and that in him they would have cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And of course, we know that indeed that's what happens. Paul is released and is able to spend time ministering before being rearrested, before being executed. So how does this passage impact us? How is God speaking to you this morning through his word? This passage should remind us that our God is in control of all things at all times. Regardless of the appearance, regardless of whether it seems to be good or bad, God has a plan. Therefore, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can trust Him. We can trust that God is working in and through those circumstances. For his own glory. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Very familiar passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And 
don't try to figure it out. Don't depend on your own understanding of what's happening here. We can trust him. We can trust him. I cannot tell you how many times in my own life God has done things that, you know, I have to step back and say, what? Why? Why would God allow that to happen? Why would God allow me to do that? Okay? But every time afterwards you can see Oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that's how this turned out. Oh, that's what God did in the midst of this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We can trust our Heavenly Father to work all things together for our spiritual good and for His glory. So we, like Paul, should cling to God's promises made to us in His Holy Word. We should pray for one another to be strong in the Lord, and we should trust in and rely upon the Spirit of Jesus Christ to empower us to face whatever may come. And like the Apostle Paul, our eyes should be fixed not on our present circumstances, but on Christ and the exceeding glory that awaits us when our work on earth is done. My prayer for myself and for you as well is that we could say along with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Heavenly Father, thank you.